Acorns knows that when you're in school, money can be tight. There's books, there's supplies, there's buffalo chicken pizzas at 2 a.m. Acorns can round every purchase up to the nearest dollar and automatically invest your spare change for you. Turn that pizza into small steps toward your future. Plus, Acorns is giving students a $10 bonus investment. Go to acorns.com college to get started. Investment advisory services offered by Acorns Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, hello there and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. Caregiver SOS on air comes to you every week, and we talk about issues that involve caregiving and caregivers and care recipients, their loved one and their families and their extended families, and we try to cover the gamut week after week as we deal with all of these important issues. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She's the past chair of the board of directors for the National Council on Aging. Carol was a member of the Ray's Family Caregiving Advisory Council under the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. They've been very much in the news of late uh, with their recommendations that have gone to Congress to provide the kind of support and help for caregivers that is so desperately needed. And Carol, we've got an interesting topic today from uh, someone on the other side of the pond, uh, Emily Kenway, who's gonna talk about the hidden crisis of caregiving. I'm so excited to have an international guest. We don't have that many international guests um, on the show. And and Emily, I just wanted to to, to say welcome uh, and also to um, ask you about the word carer since we use the word caregiver. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is a, it is a huge pleasure. Um, yes. Yeah, so in the UK, we say carer. And when I was writing the book, I realized, you know, because it was coming out in the US as well. And I was interviewing um, what I would call carers in, in the US, that it's just not a word you have there at all. And that it, it sounds kind of strange, but it is just caregiver. You know, it's the same. It's the same meaning. But in both our countries, people still get confused what we mean when we say that, right? Because it gets confused with paid workers in the care sector and family members, loved ones, friends who are unpaid and doing this kind of thing. So um, we share that kind of the murkiness of the term, which really needs addressing. Well, Emily, let me share some of your background for folks who are listening to us. Uh, Emily is a British writer and researcher. She was the primary carer for her mother who passed away from cancer in late 2020. Her book, Who Cares? The Hidden Crisis of Caregiving and How We Solve It, talks about her story and investigates why caregivers and our care system as a whole are all in crisis today and what changes are needed. It's been widely acclaimed, her book has been, and it's a finalist in the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. Her writings have also appeared in the Washington Post, the Guardian, Huffington Post, and elsewhere. And Emily Kenway, uh, as we talk about caregiving, uh, back up a little bit and tell us about your experience and, and how that impacted you and in and, and your life. Yeah, so um, when I was 31, my mum was diagnosed with cancer and she was single. 
Um, I do have a sister. I have an older sister, but she has small children. So as is the way with these things, you know, somebody becomes the kind of primary caregiver. And and it was me in that case. And uh, my mom was very, very sick throughout the time that she had cancer. She actually had three kinds of cancer across four years, leukemia and two types of lymphoma, and loads of symptoms as a result of the treatments as well. Um, so it wasn't sort of what you see in movies, you know, you get diagnosed with cancer and it's kind of a straight line to survival or, or it's opposite. It was just um, turmoil, chaos, you know, total unpredictability. There's an infection one week, there's a new symptom the next week, then we've got chemo, then there's remission, then it's back. And it was just, um, yeah, absolute turmoil. Um, for me, I was, like I say, I was 31 when it began. Um and it completely changed my life, of course, in every way. You know, I was working. Um, and so I was at first trying to juggle this around my paid work, like lots of caregivers do. Um, I was also kind of trying to have a normal life, you know, in my early 30s. But with this huge um, kind of cloud of fear for my mum, you know, supporting her emotionally, physically, darting to hospital before and after work and between things. It was it was like um, it was like being hit by a train, you know, just just life completely changed. And it was through that experience that I sort of realized I had never thought about this. You know, I would thought about childcare. I thought about parenting. I thought, of course, one day she's going to be really old and she's going to need looking after. But she got sicker, sick, much younger than we'd expected. And I realized about two years into it that I was this thing we hear call a carer, you call a caregiver. And I just, the label, I, I hadn't thought of it, you know. And I started to look online for kind of community, I suppose, just to not feel like kind of going crazy sitting alone with, you know, somebody very unhappy and very unwell beside me who I loved and found these online forums Um on Facebook groups, um, there's a UK charity like, like lots of US ones, and discovered I was very far from alone. But somehow this this thing that's happening in millions of people's lives is completely invisible. Um, and like COVID happened during all this as well. Um, she was alive for the first sort of nine months-ish, shall we say, of COVID. And it was very apparent to me you know, there was so much journalism and talk about parents struggling with COVID, which, of course, I respect. Like, you know, I have no idea how you manage small children at home and a job during COVID. It sounds absolutely horrific. But we'd already been there. You know, I'd already been trying to juggle this thing for which there's no support. And it was extremely striking, which is why I wanted to write the book to just try to do my part of saying can somebody please pay attention to this and please make some change? Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. But I want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And we're talking on our Caregiver SOS on air Zoom line all the way across the pond where Emily Kenway is joining us, a British writer and researcher and author, uh, recounting the experience of caring for her mom and then recommending uh, issues that need to be addressed if caregiving is going to continue in a better way. Carol, you've got the platform. Yeah, Emily, you know, something you said really 
resonated with me when COVID started and, and I was serving on the race committee. Um, you know, I made the I made the statement that this was what caregiving always was, this isolation. I said, is it COVID or is it Tuesday? Because in the caregiving world, it's just Tuesday, the same as every other Tuesday, except maybe now I can't get my home care worker or, you know, mm-hmm. to, to come in or I'm afraid to go to the appointment. But a lot of the emotional feelings are still the same. Um, and, and so, you know, we hear that every day that people feel like they are the only one did, did finding the other people, the other carers around you, um, what did that do? Did it, did it change the way you felt inside or was it this and that? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And there's, um, there's actually a, a quote somewhere in the book, um, which is one of the US caregivers talking about her experience. It, it could sound, it sounds like she's talking about COVID, you know, she's not, she's talking about being a caregiver before that as well. For me, finding that I was not alone, even though I was also alone in the actual house, um, was quite revelatory. It was, it was really vital for me to get through um the last patch of my mum's life in particular um especially because statistically I was younger than a lot of people are when they're doing what I was doing and I didn't have any friends that had been the main person doing terminal cancer care so it helped me oh it just it was like suddenly being in a room a virtual room so you joined these online um zoom meetups right called um care for a cuppa in very british way cup of tea um and um it was suddenly being in a room with people who just understood you know these very specific things so we would talk for example about the shame of our sick loved ones about um their incontinence right and how hard that is to support them with and how frustrating it is that you're both dealing with the practical reality of that and then the emotional layer on top of that, um, people would just cry or people would do the kind of stiff upper lip, but you could see that it was really vital for them to to say that they were frustrated because you don't want to say that to the person that you love. Um, and so it, it, I suppose it did two things for me. It made me feel I wasn't going crazy and that I was alone. Like you say, it was this and that. I was alone. I needed more support, but I wasn't insane. It was really hard and other people were there too. And it also really gave me such a strong belief in the power of community around these kind of topics. And it is why I, I really value the work of the charities in the UK and the US that do this kind of thing, that bring people together, that speak about the topic, because there will be people sitting alone with their sick loved one feeling horrific, you know, who get reached out to in this way. So, yeah, for me, it was very important. But of course, the fear is that we rely on these things instead of making major structural changes that are needed, as I know you're aware from your work on, on RAISE. Um, yeah. Well, talk a little bit. I mean, you're in a different country yes. and you see a crisis in the UK we see a crisis in the U.S. What do, what do you see um, in your system? Yeah, I mean, there's a crisis around the world, you know, and obviously there are countries where it's much worse than yours or mine as well. Um, yeah, in the U.K., uh, we have had many years of underfunding of our um, government-provided services, uh, like, like many countries. So we have 
the National Health Service, which is our amazing government funded health service. But we don't have kind of a, a strong enough care infrastructure to provide those things which don't happen in a hospital. Right. So we can focus on like, oh, they need to be hospitalized. And yeah, that's amazing. It's free, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as we all know, who've been carers, there are these long weeks and months and years sometimes where actually so much is needed. And a lot of that historically might have happened in hospitals, but we've reduced and reduced and reduced hospital stay times as well. So here we have people at home performing um, kind of routine medical things that would have been performed by medical professionals in the past. And I, I found that to be true in the US as well. We also have a real lack of the kind of critical things like respite care. So giving people a break, you know, so we have lone carers doing 24 hour care for very high needs people with no way ever of having a break on very low benefits. And that is a recipe for, you know, mental and physical disaster. You know, it's, it is ruining lives. And the frustrating thing is it doesn't need to, you know, as I'm sure we all know, care can also bring lots of things that are meaningful, but not if the material conditions are so poor. We're going to come right back to you. Stick with us. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest today, talking to us from uh, uh, the British Islands, Emily Kenway, who written a book on caregiving, written a book that includes recommendations for the kinds of changes that are needed to address problems within the caregiving system. Our co-host, Carol Zernil, is with us as well. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Well, thank you so much for listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. We're delighted to have you with us. We come to you every week with a discussion of an issue, a problem, some accomplishments involved in caregiving with more than 60 million caregivers across this country, but most thinking they are the Lone Rangers. We try to bring you the latest information and help that can make that job easier and more manageable. Caregiver SOS On Air takes a look at trends across this country. We provide tips on how to be a better caregiver, and most importantly, where you can go for help. On Caregiver SOS On Air, we try to give you what you need to make that caregiving manageable and to provide you with the help that can make your life easier. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel and I are delighted to co-host this program, and we're thrilled you've joined us on the award-winning Caregiver SOS On Air podcast available everywhere, brought to you by WellMed Charitable Foundation. Hello, friend. We're so pleased you are sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. These shows are all available on podcast. You can hear them on the radio in several cities, but on podcast, wherever you live and work, the award-winning Caregiver SOS On Air is available. We're talking with Emily Kenway, an author who has dealt with caregiving and the issues that are faced, and she has firsthand experience having cared for her mom, who ultimately passed away from cancer. Carol Zorniel, our co-host, is here. Emily, tell us about the book. Well, um, I wanted the book to do two things, I suppose. I wanted it to pay 
to pay witness to people who are caregivers, right? To tell those stories in ways that I hadn't really seen told. So who are these humans? You know, what do their lives look like? Let's actually get to know them a bit. And I very deliberately selected people from all sorts of different countries. You know, um, there's someone from Nepal, Sweden, Norway, UK, USA, etc. And who are doing different kinds of care. Um, so there's people caring for elderly parents with dementia, people caring for disabled children, people caring for spouses, all sorts. Um, but I didn't just want to tell a human story um, because I think that can turn into kind of just a display of the kind of misery, you know, a display of the devastation. I combined it on purpose with a lot of in-depth research and political analysis to say, okay, well, this is what's happening in these lives. And by the way, it's going to be your life in the future because you probably love people and, you know, we know they'll get sick and old. So if this is what's happening, what has gone wrong and what can we do instead? So I deliberately wove those um, those very human stories, including my own. There is there is uh, the story of me and my mum during her illness in the book with um, what I hope is a compelling case for change across the key parts of the way we've organised society. And there are lots of um, suggestions in there about how we might personally and politically shift our system. Uh, but I think they kind of boil down really to two things, one of which is we need to take on board the idea that we should have a right to care for our loved ones, right? Everything in our societies is geared towards work as the kind of ultimate purpose of a human life, earning, etc. And um, we've, we've lost the right to even sit with a sick loved one. I say to people in the UK, and, and I believe this is true in lots of the US as well, you know, if your mum gets terminal cancer, you do not have a right to take time off work to be with her. You know, what kind of a system is that? What kind of humanity? Um, and I think the second thing that the book really consistently tries to communicate is that whatever system we have from the government, from private companies to provide paid care, so to provide, you know, health aids that come into your house and so on, there will always be loved ones also providing care. We will always be there in the gaps or something unpredictable will happen and there won't have been a paid care worker there or our loved one will be one of the many people who doesn't want strangers doing their care. And I notice that this is completely misunderstood, that there is this assumption that if we just have enough paid care workers, so in my country, which has more of a socialist approach, I suppose, it's like more paid care workers from the government. Um, perhaps in the US, it's more paid care workers via companies like care.com. I don't know. Um, then great family members and loved ones will be able to just go to work and it won't interrupt them at all. And that is really not how it's going to play out in practice. So any solution has to take that very factual reality on board, which means allowing us all to be caregivers without us losing income, losing careers, you know, losing our mental and physical health. And it's a real key point that I consistently come back to in the book. Yeah, Emily, um, listening, you know, I'm visualizing you know, that we've kind of developed this linear lifestyle, right? We, we're children, we go to school, we go to work, we get old. And this caregiving piece 
interrupts all of that. Um, and, you know, if we step away from our work, it's so hard to get back into it. In the United States, it's very difficult, especially for a woman who's taken time off for caregiving to be seen as someone who is, you know, has something to offer in the mm-hmm. workplace. And so the the idea of mixing it up, we have these nice long lives and we save all of the retirement and all the supposedly good stuff for the end of life when we're more likely to be a caregiver and more likely to have poor health. And so I love the idea of, of being okay to work, not work. You know, some people say to retire, you know, take time off from work to to do other things to come back with it rather than living a, a straight line. A hundred percent. And it is actually one of the kind of personal things I've taken away from my experience. My mum, she was a lawyer. She worked very long hours, um, you know, as as you can imagine. And she got cancer just as she was retiring and she didn't do any of the things that she'd imagined she would do. The only patch of time she was well enough to maybe go to a museum or a gallery in London where she lived was during the first lockdown of COVID. So she sat there not being able to do it and then she passed away. So I will never solely give my my life to to a paycheck um, ever again, you know, and that's that's something that I tell people at the university where I work and I, you know, I tell people and they look slightly shocked, but you know, I I know that that will that will um, do good things for me when it comes to be my time. Um, the kind of uh, systematic changes uh, that are needed, do, do you see that happening in your country or in the U.S. or elsewhere? No, um, I see really amazing uh, campaigns and calls to action. Um, so similar to the work that you've done, Carol, on the Raise Committee, you know, there are people here who are lobbying for change, who are saying we need a national strategy for caregivers um and there's a there's an organization i profile in the book called carers worldwide that works in nepal and bangladesh and india so there's all this amazing work happening and there are lots of us who get it but what i really notice and i can't tell you how apparent it's been as i've been sort of going around talking about the book is how desperate people are who haven't been caregivers to not have to think about it to believe in that linear idea of life that you talk about carol and to assume that um that they can kind of get away with someone else doing the care for them right so we have what i think of as this outsourcing mindset it's like yes i love people yes i know that people get sick or have accidents get old whatever you know parkinson's dementia all of these things we know the statistics it's all right uh, raising but somehow i will outsource that care to robots or private companies or government workers and that's not what will actually happen when it comes to your own front door. Um, and it's very hard to make people understand that, which is why we have to just go in at a government level, right, and get these laws and protections in place. Because I don't think um, people who haven't been immersed in this are going to be willing to see it in that way. And I just want to come back to um, the point about kind of the workforce and like being willing to take time out of work and so on. One of the things I talk about in the book is that any we need to change how everyone is thinking about their employees, right? You look at an employee and maybe you make a judgment. Is it, What gender are they? If they're a woman, what age are they, right? And therefore, how likely are they to have care responsibilities, child or otherwise? Instead, um, we need to have a world in which every single human 
is expected to need to provide care at some point. Because guess what? Being born as a woman doesn't make us the default carers for our entire species. So every single employee is going to need time off at some point, is going to have gaps in their CV. That would be a much wiser, more equal way of dealing with care and work in our society and would also radically reduce the negative impacts of care on people, which have costs, right? which have healthcare costs, which have mortality costs, productivity costs, etc. So we can make a business case for it. I hate having to make business cases, but it is doable. Um, but that's really where we need to get to. Every human is a carer. Every human is a caregiver. And I think that that is the root of it and the starting point we need. But if you take a look at those in the senior levels of government and the senior levels in the corporate world, they can afford to hire out the caregiving. It doesn't impact them as directly as the rest of us, does it? Well, I would be really interested. Maybe someone out there can do a PhD on this. I'd be really interested to know how many of those um, you know, CEOs, et cetera, do have a family member who is picking up those unpredictable moments, who's there in the gaps between care workers, et cetera. I'm sure it's not them. I'm sure it's their wives or their sisters or, you know, their oldest daughter or whatever. Um, but I'd be very surprised if there are people where there is no family member playing any role at all, unless there's been a kind of major, major falling out. And yeah, that's part of the problem. Of course, our entire work world is based on a, a patriarchal history where care doesn't exist, right? Like somehow we've procreated, raised children and cared for our disabled and elderly while we were all going to work at the same time. Of course not. It was just women. We, we didn't exist in the previous kind of um, work approach. So is the fact that more men are becoming caregivers, and I, and I want to make sure before we run out of time, do you, does, is that the hope for the future, that as we see more men becoming caregivers, that they, you know, some of this changes? It may actually be. I think that's a really excellent point, Carol. It may actually be that as men find that they are needing to do it, they say, hang on, all these policies don't, don't work for this at all. It's a, it's a sad route to change, but any route's a route. <laughs> We're about out of time. Quickly, how do we get a hold of your book? Um, it's available from all good bookshops, online and off, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all of the usual places people might buy books will be able to get it to you. And it is in audiobook as well as uh, written format. Emily Kenway, thank you so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Have a great day. Talk with you soon. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, 
Long time no see. No can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work.